Please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they, could, they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here we have the account of the empty tomb. Of the four Gospels, Mark is probably the most brief, but that is his writing style throughout his Gospel. But it's the most glorious ending of the Gospel of Mark. This is the truth of Easter, the resurrection. The resurrection is everything. There is no other religion in the world who can claim this. Only biblical Christianity can claim this truth. The resurrection is a game changer for us. Without the resurrection, then Jesus was just another good man who did good things, but like all men, lived out his life and eventually succumbed to death. Without the resurrection, our faith, our preaching is in vain and we are to be most pitied. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. He was victorious over death. Jesus triumphed over sin, over Satan, over death. The resurrection is everything to us, everything to the people of God. We can't overstate the importance of the resurrection. This is our holiday. It causes us to rejoice. It causes everlasting joy in the heart of the believer. It is part of what causes us to worship Christ. This is our faith that we proclaim to the world. The one who we believe in, the one whom we trust, the object of our faith is Jesus, the risen Savior. Christianity and the resurrection stand together. If the resurrection isn't true, then forget it. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. But it is true. The resurrection was the birth of the church. If you go to the book of Acts and you read the sermons, what are they preaching? Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. Christ became victorious over the grave. And being alive at this very moment means we can come to know Him in a personal way. We can all have a personal relationship with the one and only who the grave couldn't hold. Which means all of our sins can be forgiven when we trust in Him. For the payment of our sins, a debt we could never pay. 
The resurrection authenticated that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. The resurrection is God the Father's amen that God the Son lived a perfect, flawless, and sinless life and paid the price in full for the sins of many who would believe in him for salvation of their souls. The resurrection is the greatest of all miracles. God raised the judge of the world from the dead. This is the greatest message for every believer and the greatest message for all mankind. The resurrection is the message that should make you a believer if you're not. When the apostles had to pick another apostle to replace Judas, one of the qualifications was someone who could witness with us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to the resurrection 53 times in his letters. Jesus is risen from the dead and he is alive today and forevermore. He has triumphed over death and that means for those who believe that he has triumphed also over our death. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The apostles preached with authority because they saw Jesus after his death and they believed in him. When I first received this assignment and what scripture I was to preach on, I started to think about these three ladies and thought what faith they had. But the more I dug into it and the more I saw what love these women had. So I believe that is what I want to establish this morning with this account of the risen Christ. The greatest commandment in the Old Testament as well as the New is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is love it, you like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. These women had been with Jesus for maybe three years at best, just like the apostles. And they listened to his teaching. And I'm sure, just as the the apostles, they didn't understand everything that he taught. But what they could understand, they believed. And they held daily to their hearts. These women, obviously, like the apostles, didn't fully comprehend the teaching of the resurrection. But they were devoted followers. And we will see their love and care for Jesus as we go through this account. They came to know the love of God in the Son of God. And what does that look like? Jesus loved them just as they were. And he taught them the way of eternal life. So the love of God for sinners creates in sinners a love of God. I say that one more time because that is very important for you to understand. So the love of God for sinners creates in sinners a love for God. Their faith and hope had been shattered with the brutal death of Jesus. The same with the apostles. They must have thought, as the apostles thought, it's over. Jesus, who they had their hope and their faith in, was dead. These women have been spiritually touched by the Savior, and their ministry is to minister to Jesus as he proclaims the good news of the gospel and performs miracles and continues to do the will of the Father as he gets closer and closer to the cross. They were great sinners like me and you, and they saw and experienced something special in Jesus. He had the words of eternal life. They found forgiveness and comfort for their weary souls with Jesus, and they were committed to him. They had been brought to a place in their lives where they had encountered Christ, and it affected them and changed them forever. 
in verse 40 of chapter 15 of Mark, it tells us that these women were looking on from a distance and they saw and they witnessed the death of Christ on the cross. It also tells us in verse 47 of 15 in Mark that they witnessed Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Jesus, wrap him in a living cloth and place the body of Jesus in a new tomb. And the tomb was closed off by a large stone. The tombs were cut out of a cliff or a ledge. They were carved from stones that could weigh up to a thousand pounds. They were placed on a track that was on an incline to the tomb. And once the body was in the tomb, they could just pull a wooden pin and the stone would roll down and place itself and seal it over the tomb. When the Sabbath was over and the places of business were open again, the ladies bought spices bought spices so that they may come and anoint the body of Jesus. We have to remember that Jesus was the most despised person in that area at this time. His disciples are hiding behind closed doors at this point. And these ladies are starting out early on the first day of the week while it's still dark. And because of their love for the Lord, they are compelled to go anoint him with very costly and pricely um, spices. The Egyptians were embalming bodies, but the Jewish people would pour spices over strips of cloth and wrap the body with these linen cloths up to about the upper chest. Then they would wrap the head like a turban and leave the face and the shoulders exposed. In John's account, we are told that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus and it was granted to him. And he and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus with a hundred pounds of mare and alloys and bound it in linen wrappings and quickly placed Jesus in a new tomb in a garden. So Jesus' body was prepared for the tomb, but it was done quickly because it was the Jewish day of preparation before the Sabbath. But the love of these ladies for Jesus, he meant so much to them that they wanted to do something special. This was a bold step for these ladies to want to go out and leave in darkness and go to a tomb of the one who the nation was just yelling a few days ago, crucify him, crucify him. This should tell us something about their hearts and their love. Think about it for a moment. Put yourself in that place. Some of us have experienced the loss of someone we love dearly, or some of us haven't, but we will if we live long enough. Think of someone who holds a major part of your heart and how much you love them. And if that someone was taken away by death, we would still love them greatly, right? Sometimes maybe even love them more. But this is an emptiness that settles in our hearts and the loss of a loved one. This is where these ladies are. Maybe not thinking rationally right now, but wanting to do something else for the loss of their loved one. Their love for Jesus shows us sacrificial giving. These spices were not cheap and they were not wealthy ladies. But they put together what they had what they could to give the Lord a proper burial. The way we give our resources and our finances, our time, our homes, says something about the condition of our hearts. Sacrificial giving. I know of a man many years ago who had his own business and things were going good, but the economy changed and he started to struggle. He was going to lose his business unless he did something. So the financial advisors came in and took a look at his records And they saw something and came up with a solution for him that could possibly save his business. If he would stop giving to the church, it may be enough to keep him hanging on. The man refused. He lost his business and his house. 
but God took care of him and blessed him with a good job and even better house. Think about that on how we spend our resources. It's not so much the amount, but the heart and where we are with God. This is where these ladies were. They sacrificed their time and efforts and whatever resources they had to minister to Jesus. And now that he was dead, they felt that they had to minister him one more time. Luke 8, chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that Mary Magdalene was supporting Jesus' ministry with other women out of their own private means. Love must sacrifice. Love must give. As these ladies were walking to the tomb, the sun has risen now, and as they're walking, they were saying, who will roll away the stone? These ladies' love for the Lord motivated them immensely. What love they displayed. They're on a mission. They believe they're in the will of God to honor Jesus. They want to minister to Him one more time. Verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Just for a moment, imagine their conversation on the way to the tomb. What about that huge stone? How are we going to do it by ourselves? Maybe someone would be around to help us. Maybe someone said, let's trust in God and see how he provides. Maybe the conversation even got a little heated trying to figure out what to do with the stone. I would think that they prayed and asked God to intervene. Matthew account on this text tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and ironically they remembered that Jesus would raise after the third day, said he would raise after the third day. So they asked for a guide and for a tomb to be sealed so that Jesus' followers couldn't steal the body. Well, apparently these ladies knew nothing about that because that would have been a hindrance as well as the stone. The huge stone that sealed the tomb would have been a good excuse to abort the mission and go home and go back to bed. But not these ladies. Their love for the Lord compelled them on. They continued on in their journey to the tomb. They were not sure what they were going to do once they got there, but their love for God and whatever faith and hope they had left, they pressed on with. The people of God never lose hope completely. When, with God, all things are possible. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. The ladies arrive at the tomb. The problem of the stone is no longer an issue. The ladies' concern for the stone is no longer a problem. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that there was a severe earthquake that had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and he sat upon it. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. The young man sitting at the right wearing the right robe is an angel of the Lord. God had the stone rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the ladies in and John and Peter and us. The major point here for us, the grave clothes that Jesus had on when he was resurrected, he passed up right through them. He could walk right out the tomb, just pass through the rock. John 20, 19 says, this is the evening of the first Easter. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The Lord at this point is no longer restrained by walls and barriers like we are. He has been raised in his glorified body. When Jesus raised Lazarus in John 11, the first thing he has done is for them to remove the stone. Jesus raised Lazarus from being dead for four days, but Lazarus wasn't raised in a glorified body. Lazarus had to die again. 
He needed help with the stone and he also needed help with his grave clothes. Jesus didn't need to have the stone removed for him to get out. Or it was removed for us to go in. The stone has rolled away to show them and us today that he is alive and lives and has the victory over the grave. John tells us that there was a garden there and a new tomb when no one had been laid. Go there in your mind this morning. Death is a terrible thing. The ladies I have been talking about are in the early stages of mourning. Why did this have to happen, they probably said. They may be saying to each other, he was a good man. He raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. The lame could walk. The mute could speak. We come to the tomb and these ladies this, with these ladies this morning expecting, expecting to visit the dead. The sun has just come up. We can start to feel the warmth of the sun in your, on your flesh. The air is crisp and clean. It's a garden, so maybe there's some flowers growing. The landscape is beautiful. Birds are singing and the grave is open. And the one who was brutally murdered is gone. Curiosity draws the lady and us into the tomb. He's gone. It's empty. They knew he was dead. They saw it with their own eyes. They saw what he went through on the cross and they saw him placed in the tomb. This is the first Easter. It's the very first sunrise service because the Son of God did rise. The stone was rolled away for the ladies and us so that we would believe and have eternal life in Christ Jesus. The angel said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. The tombs in those days had like an entrance hallway. Then in a larger room was a shelf that was carved out on a rock. And this is where the body was laid. The angel of the Lord points to the stone shelf and the body of Jesus isn't there. Just the grave clothes. At this point, I don't believe that they still don't completely comprehend what is going on. Not yet. At least not for Mary Magdalene. Um, Verse 7, the angel tells them to go to the disciples and Peter and tell them that Jesus will meet you in Galilee just as he told you. Please notice that the angel singles out the apostle Peter. Satan had demanded that Peter be sifted like wheat. Peter was in need of some special restoration from the Lord. Peter denied the Lord three times in fear of his own life. And how many times have we denied the Lord and not spoken up when we should have? Jesus knew how Peter was going to be broken and broken badly. But the Lord had some special restoration grace for Peter. And Peter was going to be used mightily in the birth of the New Testament church. What amazing love. How God can take something terrible in our life and use it for our good and his glory. They went out and they fled for the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. These poor three ladies, for three days they've been crying and mourning. Their hearts have been ripped out of their chests. But now maybe hope and faith is starting to be restored within them. They must be wondering, is it true? Did teachings that they heard from Jesus start to come back to their minds and start to make sense now? They are in shock, total amazement and trembling. This is how we should come to the cross today, amazed that the one who knew no sin would become sin on that cross and give his life as a ransom for sinners such as us. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? I'd like to single out one lady at this time because there's more in the scripture written about her, and that's Mary Magdalene. 
In the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, we read that Mary Magdalene does go to Jesus' disciples and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple and says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John start running to the tomb. And John outruns Peter and gets to the tomb first. And he stoops and looking in, he looks and he sees the linen wrappings. But he doesn't go in. Peter gets there and runs right in. Peter sees the living cloth laying there and then John comes into the tomb and the scripture says that he saw and he believed. My hope and pray that God gives you all here today the ability to see and believe. But Mary, who has been crying for three days and most likely hardly any sleep, still doesn't understand what is going on. She is back outside of the tomb, still weeping. She looks into the tomb again and sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus was laid. And the angels say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The position of the angels is just like the two golden cherubim who were on either side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. These two angels in the garden were positioned at the head and the feet of Jesus. Jesus has just become the perfect sacrifice and has become the true and eternal mercy seat for all mankind who would believe. The angel asked Mary, why are you weeping? Mary said, because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. After Jesus says this, she turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus asked her why she's crying, and she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. All Jesus had to say to her was her name, Mary. And the eyes of her hearts were open. John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Mary goes back to the disciples, announcing, I have seen the Lord. The ladies, last at the cross, first to the tomb, First to declare the good news that Jesus has indeed risen and is alive and well. Their faith, their hope were completely restored. Their love for God and mankind greater now than ever before. So I ask, where are all of you today with faith, hope and love? What does Easter mean to you? Maybe some would say I'm struggling with faith and hope. Maybe some don't know how deep and great the love of God is and they find it hard to love him. If this is where you find yourself today, I would suggest that you would start with love. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you all just the way you are right now. Today is the day of the Lord. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Open your hearts this Easter to the love of God. Come as you are. Don't think, well, I have to take care of a few things in my life. And then I'll come to God. Don't do that. Let God take care of the few things in your life. Come as you are. Is he calling your name today like he did Mary? Answer him. Ask for greater faith. But start with love. Start with love. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I'll close with one last story by D.L. Moody, spoken many years ago. It was a bright young girl, about 15 years of age, who was suddenly cast upon a bed of suffering completely paralyzed on one side and nearly blind. She could hardly see, but she, couldn't, she could still hear. 
As she lay in her bed one day, she heard the family doctor say to her parents as they stood by her bedside, she has seen her best days. Poor child. Fortunately, the girl was a believer. She quickly replied, no, doctor, my best days are yet to come when I shall see the king in his beauty. Her hope, like ours, lie in the resurrection. Jesus said to Martha before raising Lazarus from the grave, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then Jesus asked the questions of all questions, and I'll leave you with that this morning. Do you believe this? Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then said he to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. How many of you have been to a sunrise service before? We didn't have one today, so you didn't miss one. But anyway, I've heard of all kinds of crazy things with sunrise services, and I've heard the craziest one this morning, and it was from my own daughter, who went up in a plane this morning, called a C-5. You Air Force people or military people might know something about a cargo plane, right? A C-5. The interior of it, of it would be bigger than this room. And hundreds of people got on that plane... Uh, and her brother-in-law, who happened to be the pilot, took him up in the sky and they had a resurrection celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, here we are on the ground and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We had some wonderful reading from our sisters. You know, it was the ladies that went to the tomb, interestingly, not the men. I'm not trying to be uh, partial here in any way, but let's give credit where credit is due, sisters. Give yourself a hand. No, I'm only kidding. But it was the ladies that went to the tomb to want to anoint the body of the Lord Jesus. What Jesus must have meant to them to go with no possibility of them physically being able to move away stone so that they could get inside and anoint the dead, bloodied body of Jesus that was bludgeoned to death. Not just nailed to the tree. He had already gone through scourging. His head was crowned with the crown of thorns that were beaten into his skull. A canvas bag was put over his head. He was punched in the face. Hairs were plucked off of his cheeks. That's the Lord Jesus that they were going to anoint his body. You know, we're celebrating his resurrection. It's the greatest day of all days of human history. 
But think of it, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what difference would it make? For most people, it would make no difference in their lives. Things would probably still go on the same way, whether he's still in the grave, whether he even died or not, some might even question. But if he was risen from the dead, some would have no change of life whatsoever. It would be meaningless to them. But speaking from a Bible standpoint and from the truth standpoint, here are some reasons why it's vital that Christ rose from the dead. And if He didn't, these would be the consequences. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, if Christ isn't risen, then is our preaching meaningless. It's empty. It's of no value. It has no significance whatsoever. Paul in that same context says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You know, Muhammad might give a whole scheme of rules and laws whereby one could uh, uh, run their life by and it may have some impact on them or follow Buddha and Buddhism or uh, or Tao and Taoism or whatever you may possibly follow. It may have some bearing on your lifestyle. But the difference with Christ is those who believe on Him have hope not only in this world, but in the one to come. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. We would say like a man in the Old Testament say, who said, I have played the fool. If Christ wasn't risen, I'd be heading down to Florida. I'd be going overseas. I'd be going to potty land. But I am enjoying something far better because of the reality that Christ is not only risen from the dead, but He has risen in my heart and saved my soul and become my personal Lord and Savior. He's alive in me. That's the real impact of the resurrection of Christ. So if He didn't rise from the dead, faith would be meaningless. Secondly, there would be no hope of a future resurrection. My wife was in France this past week with my daughter who took her there, and they went to a catacomb, and the pictures were sent on the phone, couldn't believe it, six million bodies of bones were placed in a huge catacomb, and they sent pictures, and there were stacks and stacks of bones, and yards and yards deep of all bones of of six million people. You know, the Bible says the hour is coming, is coming when all that are in the graves will hear His voice and shall come forth. Because of Christ being risen Himself and being Lord of Lords and King of Kings, He has authority over even the bodies of those that have died. All that are in the graves will hear His voice and all will live and be resurrected. Thirdly, if Christ isn't risen then there is no ultimate justice. Think of it. Adolf Hitler escaped going to the courts, having to face the judicial system, having to face society for what he headed up. So what does he do? He commits suicide. At least that's what we believe, that he inflicted himself and died. Never had to face anybody, never had to go through the judicial system whatsoever. Wouldn't it be unjust if he got away with that 
and never had to pay any consequences for them. The Bible says the wicked will not be unpunished. Well, when will that punishment take place? Well, surely after one dies, but after one is risen from the dead and then in body, soul, form, one will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and then they will be consigned to their eternal destinies. And for the wicked, it will be the lake of fire where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. That's when justice will be done. But praise God for the many who have believed, who have obeyed the gospel from their heart, trusting Jesus. They are assured, as the Bible says, that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. I can appear before the Lord, giving before Him the righteousness that He has given to me and stand boldly before the throne of grace assured that I'm a forgiven person and you can have that assurance as well. The fourth reason if Christ didn't rise from the dead is it's the heart and soul of Christianity. It would hollow out Christianity entirely. It takes the full meaning and impact of Christianity out of the picture if Christ is not risen from the dead. And maybe the most important problem would be if Christ isn't risen, that Jesus Himself would be a hoax. He fooled everybody, or at least His followers. We'd have to say, yeah, He was a carpenter. He was born in Bethany. He was raised in Nazareth. And He lived here in this world for 30 four odd years. He was crucified on the cross, but he was still just simply the carpenter, the son of Joseph. Uh Uh-uh. Not so. If he wasn't risen, that would be the conclusion. And lastly, we'd have nothing in the future to look forward to. You know, when you think of it, what's the future hold? What's ahead? What direction is the world going towards? Every time we turn a corner where we think we may have made some progress, it just seems like something else pops up. I don't know, at one time there were like 150 different wars going on at the same time on the globe. I don't know how many there are right now going on. I'm not talking about huge wars, but small ones in measure. They're gone. There's no peace in the world. But there's hopes, I think, that everybody has that someday, somehow, things are going to get better. But the ultimate good and the ultimate greatness that will be bettered is when the Lord Jesus returns. And when He will put all enemies under His feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed will be death. And He will reign then as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says that we will dwell then in a righteous state. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Old things will be passed away. Old things will not be remembered again. It will be an entirely new universe. We look forward then to a new heaven, a new world, and the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of John here where we were reading, we have a a fourth behold that I want to draw your attention to. The first behold in the Gospel of John is when Jesus appears at the Jordan River to be baptized. And John the Baptist had anticipated this Messiah figure coming to the Jordan River. And suddenly he saw him descend 
down to the Jordan River to be baptized. And the Spirit came upon Jesus and John knew He was the Messiah. And He tells everybody in the audience, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first behold. Later in Jesus' lifetime, when He has to go before Pontius Pilate, He's betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's turned over to the Jews. The high priests interview Him, bring Him before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's wife has a dream. And in that dream, she said to her husband, In my dream, I dreamt this. This is a righteous man and have nothing to do with him. In other words, walk away from this. This is a dynamite situation. Get out of it. The best Pilate could do was take a basin of water, wash his hands, and say, I am guilt-free from the blood of this just man. Nevertheless, in appeasing the people, in fulfilling his office and role, he had to present Jesus before the crowd with a purple robe, with a crown upon his head, and says to the people, Behold the man! Hoping possibly that they might exonerate Jesus, that the day of crucifixion might not be his that day. And they said, no, away with this man. They didn't want him. Pilate took him back in the judgment hall, interviewed him again, brought him before the Jewish audience. And again, that word behold is used. And Pilate says, behold your king. And they say, unitedly, we have no king except Caesar. Imagine that. The Jews saying that they have Caesar as their king. That right there is blasphemy for the Jew to acknowledge Caesar as king, and here the Messiah is rejected by them. But in the last one, we have another, we have another appearance of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, as you know, appeared to the other twelve, the other, the other, I should say ten, because Judas Iscariot was taken away by this time. He appears to the ten, and they're amazed, and they were doubtful as well. We think of Thomas as being the doubting apostle, but in reality they were all doubters. They had, although the ten of them had seen Jesus and were persuaded, and he showed them the evidence that he was risen from the dead. And they report that to Thomas. We have seen the Lord. And what does Thomas say? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the spear mark in his side, I will not believe. He didn't say, if I see. He said, unless I see. Now that's stronger language than just if I see. In other words, I've got to see this. I'm demanding evidence for believing that He's risen from the dead. Well, Jesus appears eight days later. If there was a reason to be angry with any of the apostles, it would have been Thomas. Jesus could have very easily said to him, Thomas, how did you not believe what ten disciples, your fellow apostles, said to you that I was risen from the dead? How could you not believe them? We get frustrated sometimes 
When we try to tell people what the risen Christ has done for us and that He's truly raised up from the dead, He's coming back again and He's a real human being seated at the right hand of God who is a Savior for sinners who we have trusted as our own Lord and Savior and He's changed our lives. And we try to tell people, come to Jesus. What He did for me, I said this to someone the other day, I said, what He did for me, He can do for you. I'm no exception. I think of myself in many ways as being the chief of sinners. So I don't want to look down upon anybody for whatever way they choose to live their lives or have lived their lives. There is a Savior for sinners of all kinds. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the spear in his side, I will not believe. Thomas, come here, Jesus said. And Jesus then turns over the palms of his hands. You see that, children? What are these? These would be the nail mark scars left on the body of the Lord Jesus. And he says, Thomas, reach hither thy finger and put it into my hands. And then take your hand and thrust it. No, I'm not going to take my shoulder. Thrust it into my side. Thomas saw it. He said, this is an exclamation. This is the doxology of doxologies. I can't say it loud enough. I can't jump high enough. I can't be enthusiastic enough. When Thomas saw the risen Christ... And he shouts out, My Lord! My God! This is amazing! Risen from the dead? What does that risen from the dead mean? The hymn writer said, The love from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. My great high priest has my name written on the palms of his hands. You know, the a high priest of the Old Testament had the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel on his breastplate. Six and six, twelve tribes' names there. Jesus has them on the palms of His hands. Right out of Isaiah, it says, I have your names in the palms of my hands. So when He showed them to Thomas, Thomas says, My Lord, do you believe those palms are they turned over in your presence? There were disciples that walked with Jesus after His resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus comes alongside of them and said, what are you all talking about? And they said, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Haven't you heard? And they had a discussion and were carrying on. And Jesus opens up the Scriptures and expounds unto them out of the Old Testament things concerning Himself. And after, the, after He spoke with them, it says, Did not our heart burn within us while He spoke to us by the way and went open to us the Scriptures? But still they weren't sure who He was until they came to a crossroad and the disciples were going one way and Jesus was going the other way and they stopped at that fork in the road and Jesus made as if He was going to go a different direction and they offered Him hospitality to come with them. And it says when they got into the home that Jesus took the bread and He broke it. 
And when he broke it, it says, and he was known of them in the breaking of bread. How was he known? By the nail prints in his hands. You didn't know that I had those marks, did you? Until I turned my palms over. When Jesus broke the bread, he turned the palms over, and there they saw the marks. And he was known of them through the breaking of bread. The hymn writer said, Thy love by, thy love by man so sorely tried proved stronger than the grave. The very spear that pierced thy side drew forth the blood to save. Just think of the way Jesus was treated. He was already dead and they plunged a spear through his side and the Bible says, and forthwith there came there out blood and water. That is the blood to cleanse us from our sins. I trust that you have believed the Gospel today and know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is portrayed, first of all, as the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. John says that twice in John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb. We don't want you to behold a church. We don't want you to behold a man, pastor, a preacher, a teacher, anyone that you esteem, anyone that's really faithful to the gospel wants to say like John, he must increase, I've got to decrease. Behold the man, behold the king, behold the Lamb of God. That's where the salvation comes from. Not from me, not from us. The church can't dispense a sacrament to save you. The best we can do is say, Look yonder to cursed Christ on the cross who bore the penalty of sin and ask yourself, died He for me? Did He die for you? I trust you can say with an Amen, I believe on the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Christ came into my heart, when God opened the eyes of my understanding, He opened my heart to see that Christ died in my place. I have never been Jesus that I thought I knew, I know now that I know a Jesus that I didn't really know back then until a fresh revelation came to my soul that Christ died for me. Could this be a day for you that you will look afresh at Christ and believe in your heart that He died as a substitute in your place? He's depicted by John as a lamb. The lamb is slain. Slain. In the Old Testament, a lamb was taken on the Passover. It was slain. Its blood was shed. In the New Testament, Jesus says that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Are you one of the us? I had sent out a notice to um, a bunch, a group of guys that I go to the gym with and I play ball with weekly. Uh, one of them, who's a real believer, had sent out a notice to, to all the guys about... Good Friday and to look up what Good Friday really means and he sort of opened the door for me and I just responded to that and I tried to talk about what, why Good Friday is really Holy Friday and how a holy God had to punish His Holy Son who was made holy sin for us. W-H-O-L-L-Y Holy sin for us. Or W-H-O-L-E-L-Y Is that right? He was totally made sin on the cross and God's judgment fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how holy God is. Well, one of the guys responded by saying He paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. 
I wish he said he paid the ultimate sacrifice for me. Because we all probably here believe that he died for our sins. But how many of you believe that he died for your sins? That's the difference between going to heaven and going to hell. He's also called in the Gospel of John the door. Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The door. You know, in the Old Testament, the blood of the lamb that was taken was sprinkled with a hyssop stick on the upper doorpost and on two side posts, in the middle and on both sides. And that night when the destroying angel came through, any house that did not have the blood, the Bible says that the angel would go and destroy the firstborn in that home. But God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. When God sees the blood. Does He see the blood applied to your life? Now think of the Lord Jesus when He turned over the palms of His hands. There's one side post. There's the other side post. And here is the The lintel on the top. The three. Jesus is the door. In the last illustration I want to give you in John, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He uses the metaphor of the temple to describe His own body. He says, you destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up again for a new body. This is how we commune. The temple was a place of communion with God. And the way we now can commune with God or have a relationship with Him is by coming to the temple and communing with God the Father by the Spirit through the Son, the Lord Jesus, who's the temple. Is He your temple? It's the new meeting place with God. And the last thing I want to say is in the Gospel of John, Jesus is portrayed in John 13. Our brother Seth Fuller a couple of weeks spoke about Jesus with the disciples and he took the disciples and he washed each feet. And he said, as I have done this unto you, do to one another. What a servant, the King of kings and Lord of lords, washing the stinky feet of the apostles. What a servant he was. Jesus has marks on his body today. If Jesus appeared right now, we would see the marks. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, they shall look on Him whom they have pierced. The piercings of Jesus have not been ridded from His body. They still remain there in marks of indelible grace to you and I. In the Old Testament, a true servant, a servant that was hired, and his time of service was legally six years. When the seventh year came around, that servant had to decide whether or not he was going to remain in a servantile position with the master or he could have simply gone out free. That was an option. And and the master had no say over him. It was a voluntary choice that he would make and he would come to a conclusion at the seventh year. And at the seventh year the true servant of the Master would come to this conclusion. He would say publicly, I love 
my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free. And when the master heard that great noise, what would the master do? His responsibility was to take that servant and bring him to a door, and this was again public, and would take with his ear, he would pound a nail or an awl through his ear and brand mark him. It's a declaration of his own saying, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go out free. Brothers and sisters, remember, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world, sent His Son, and Jesus, as a servant, concludes His life's ministry by saying, I am going to be crucified that the world would know that I love what? My Father. That was number one for Jesus. He didn't just simply come for you in my sake, yours and mine, but He came out of obedience to His Father and to demonstrate the love that He had for His Father. I will not go out free. I love my Master. That's why Jesus says, My Father is greater than I in one context. He's not ontologically greater than Jesus, but from a servant-master standpoint, which is where Jesus is coming from, He is saying that my Master is greater than I because I am a servant to Him and I'm going to demonstrate my love by giving my life up on the cross. And then, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my family. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Do you see Jesus as that servant who took those marks from God out of love for Him? Number one, I love my Master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go out free. We said last week in talking about Gethsemane when Jesus had the cup trembling as it were, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. But... He concluded it by saying, Not my will, but thine be done. In that bitter cup, love drank it up. Now nothing but blessings are drought for you and me if we believe the Gospel. That that cup of judgment was filled for Jesus to drink when He went to the cross and bore our penalty of sin. And then He comes gloriously in resurrection power. He turns over the palms of His hands. And that us who believe those are the letters of love to us. Those are the marks of indelible grace. Those are the marks of a true servant who says, I love you and I gave myself for you on the cross. Will you believe this message? We're not interested in you joining the church. We're not interested in you even changing your lifestyle. We're not going to give you a bunch of rules. We want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We plead with you. Come faith in Christ. Trust Him that God raised Him from the dead. He set Him at His own right hand and He's coming again. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
There is nothing better in this world than to have a relationship with the true and the living God. Jesus Christ. When I see Him as a believer, I'm going to look afresh at the hands of the Lord Jesus and I want to press Him to my lips and say, Thank You, Lord, for saving my soul. Lord, for making me whole. Thank You, Lord, for giving to me Thy great salvation so full and so free. Let's close in prayer.